Hello, and welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. How are you all this week? I hope you enjoyed my little bonus episode Monday. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, late Sunday night, I interviewed Chris and Lindsay, the hosts of How Are You Holding Up, about their mental health podcast. So check that out and check them out. You'll find links to their show in the show notes of that episode. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in their kids' stories. I'll have that put together soon. It'll be released just like Sunday's episode as a bonus episode in the feed. So don't worry, there will also be a regular show that week as well. If you miss the deadline, feel free to send me your kids' stories anyway, and I will gather them until I have enough for another episode later in the year. Our first story tonight is a cautionary tale by Bo Bandy. I will link their website in the show notes so you can enjoy more of their tales as well. This one is called Never Steal from the Dead. I'm a mortician's assistant. That's even less glamorous than it might sound. If you believe the icky job of preparing a dead person for public viewing and burial is unpleasant, just imagine what his lackey does. At least his pay is good. I make a third of what he makes and I do most of the heavy lifting. It's very frustrating. I have bills to pay too. In the funeral business, we perform a vital service, and much like other industries, the figureheads receive the lion's share of the praise and the financial rewards. Those of us who work behind the scenes basically receive the scraps. I only explain the inner workings of the mortician business because I have a cautionary tale to reveal. When you handle dead bodies every day, You become desensitized to it. It's a natural coping mechanism. Our funeral director is a model of decorum, but behind the curtain, it's a different story. We do what must be done while the director maintains his facade of respectability for the benefit of the family. We cut up just like everyone else does at work. The average person would be appalled at the antics that go on for the prep, But what they don't know won't hurt them. At least that's what I thought. It's not uncommon for the family to provide a display case full of jewelry for their departed. I suppose that's a carryover from ancient times when people believed that the dead needed worldly possessions for barter in the afterlife. Often, those necklaces, rings, and bracelets are costume junk of no real value. Other times, the family wants to bury Grandma with a fortune of precious jewels. Why? I asked myself. If there is no afterlife, or it's non-corporeal, what's the point in material possessions? I suppose I'm trying to justify what I'm about to admit. It's not like I broke into a retail store and made off with all their precious merchandise. I simply pocketed a five-carat diamond ring from an elderly lady who was about to be buried in the ground forever. She didn't need it. 
I had convinced myself. It was a huge waste of money, and I didn't think the family would ever know. The casket was open, but her hands were below the viewing area. I had a car payment due, and these people were throwing away $5,000 on silly sentimentality. It was madness, I felt. I would have never broken into this lady's home to take it from her, if she was still alive. I wouldn't dream of doing that. In that case, the ring would obviously still belong to her. As far as I was concerned, she was gone, in an absolute sense, and her family was willingly discarding it for incomprehensible reasons. They were about to pitch a small fortune into a wooden box and bury it. I realize I'm justifying a legitimate crime in the eyes of the law, but I honestly felt it was a victimless crime which no one would ever know about. I was wrong. Thankfully, the funeral and burial went without a hitch. I was terrified one of the mourners would reach in to touch her hand and realize the huge rock was missing. When no one did, and the lid was sealed, I breathed a sigh of relief. I could pawn it in a week or two to make my car payment, and set aside a few extra bucks for a rainy day. That evening, there were a number of odd things which happened to me, but I brushed them off as paranoia. First of which was an unusually strong thunderstorm that wasn't expected in my area. I had just checked the news. There was a zero chance of bad weather, and yet a huge electrical storm was in full force. Stranger, it was isolated to my local neighborhood. I could see clear skies a block away. It didn't make sense. Then, my doorbell kept ringing. I looked out the window several times, but I didn't see anyone on the porch. I figured it was pranksters messing with me. When I confirmed that no one was hiding around the corner, I decided it was tied to the lightning. After it kept happening, I opened the door to investigate further. Let me tell you, I was in for a huge reality check. Or rather, a sur-reality check. On my front porch stoop was the animated corpse of Mrs. Baxter, the lady I had commandeered the huge diamond ring from. She didn't look amused. I stood there in disbelief. I was fully awake, and it was definitely the body of the person I had seen lowered into the ground earlier that day. I had assisted with the embalming and other mortician procedures. I knew she was dead. There was no question about that, but I didn't preoccupy myself with the logistics of how a corpse was animate, how she had removed herself from the coffin, or how she had managed to dig through six feet of soil above her. At the moment, none of that mattered. I was sure that little old Mrs. Baxter had an axe to grind with me. Why else would a corpse be on my front porch? She either came for justice or the satisfying taste of cold revenge. I assumed there wasn't much I could do to dissuade her. Whatever dark forces propelled her to my front door that evening wouldn't be stopped with a deft karate chop or fancy footwork. Nope, I was doomed. I braced for the karmic punishment of stealing from the dead. 
There had to be a really severe price to pay for that. Instead, the little old lady silently outstretched her palm. Her eyes were still stitched shut, but the implication was clear. Give me back what is mine. Instead of turning, I slowly backed up until I was inside the threshold of my living room. Despite the undead on my doorstep, I didn't shut the door on her. That would be rude, right? I reached under the corner of my entertainment stand and pulled out the massive ring from its hiding place. Somehow, I managed to walk back towards her. Slowly, I placed the gleaming gem back on her finger where it belonged. I stammered a lame apology about not realizing she needed it any longer, but she appeared to be in no mood to hear it. The underworld requires a long, difficult journey, she snarled through stitched lips. The ferryman seats his passengers according to the quality of their payment. I'm not riding in steerage because some snot-nosed millennial mortician's assistant was greedy and took my fairy tribute. Don't you ever steal from the dead again, young man. They need their valuables. I'm late for my final journey, or you'd pay for your cowardly little larceny. With that ominous warning and threat, she was gone. The thunder died, and the lightning immediately subsided. It was a moral lesson I won't soon forget. Don't take from the deceased. This next story is by Andre Matthews, host of the fantastic podcast, Bruh is a Murder, and you also know him from the beautifully gross story called Rats from episode 30. This week, he brings us a twisted and very original tale called Endgame Movies. Rugrats go to Paris. When that movie hit theaters, I saw it maybe six times within a week. After the third, my mother hated the movie with passion, but I was her baby boy. She always gave me whatever I wanted, and I always expected it. After the seventh going to see the movie, my dad told her that that was the last time she was about to waste his money on a dumb kid's movie. He needs to grow the fuck up. I heard him tell her from their bedroom. He's a child. Let him enjoy being one. It's just a movie, she whispered back, knowing how small our apartment was and how far my father's voice travels. You spent 50 fucking dollars in four days. I'm not made of money, he shouted back. I heard more yelling, more hushed whispers, and eventually a slap. Even at that age, I knew that that was coming. It always did. A couple months passed by. I was coming home from school when I saw the glow. A bright purple neon sign. End game movies. The M flickered slightly. I walked this route to and from school every day, and this was the first day I saw this place. It wasn't new, either. The thick 
bulletproof glass windows were clearly keyed. Random names, swastika symbols, Dre was here, and what looks to be an incomplete game of hangman? As I walked closer, I heard the hum of the sign, and looking inside I could see rows of movies. In the back corner, I see a poster on the wall of a big green dinosaur, with the words, Rugrats go to Paris above its head. I went inside and walked towards the man at the counter with a purpose. I figured I can check whether they have the movie, check the price, and beg my mom to buy it for me tomorrow. Excuse me, do you have the Rugrats movie? I asked. (laughs) I loved that movie, he said with a chuckle as he closed the magazine he was reading. Yeah, kid, check the back corner. He paused while staring me in the face. A moment passed, a moment that felt like forever. I broke the awkwardness by saying, thanks, and walking to the back of the store. I could feel him still staring at me, and I figured I should be quick because this guy's a creep. In the back corner, I saw dozens of those iconic orange VHS tapes, and there it was. Rugrats go to Paris. I picked it up and turned to give it to the weird man hoping he'd hold it for me. I heard shouting from the other end of the store, so I slowed my pace. Something was happening. There were three boys with hoods up arguing with the weird man. Two were in front of the counter and one was behind it with the man, pointing something in his face. A gun. He had a gun pointed at his face. I've never seen one in real life, and honestly, it looks like my airsoft. He was shouting, Give it to me! What the fuck, are you deaf? The man behind the counter didn't look scared, but confused. He tilted his head and slowly stepped toward the teenage boy. Dude, back the fuck up, the teen yelled. I'm not fucking around. The man reached out as if to grab him, and pop. He fired, and I ran. I ran past the teen, I ran out the door, and I ran home. I told my parents about everything I saw. My mom hugged me, and my dad punished me for not being home on time. Years went by after the robbery I witnessed. Years of abuse and years of acting out. My father up and left one day. My mother said he hooked up with a co-worker and moved in with her after she got pregnant. We also moved to the city so she could find a better job. I never saw him again, and I never cared. My mother, however, saw him every day, because as I got older, she'd tell me how much I acted like him. In high school, I fell in with the wrong crowd. We smoked, drank, partied, and ended up in trouble. My mom couldn't take it anymore. After bailing me out of jail, when I should have been in school, she asked me to get out. If you wish to act like a thug, you can live like one, she told me, as her apartment door closed. I couch hopped between my friend's houses. I thought I didn't need her, but I could figure it out on my own. Until I ran out of what little cash I had. Here, my friend Tyreek said as he handed me a paper bag. I grabbed it. It was surprisingly heavier than I thought it was. 
what's this? I said. With a smirk, and while adorning his hood, he said, Your meal ticket. A gun. It was a gun, and we were about to commit a robbery. He said it would be fast. We run in, get the cash, and we run out. Tyreek, his younger brother Eric, and I hit the streets. I know a spot. It's a shitty movie store that just opened. I never see anyone in there, Tyreek said, as he loaded a joint. That's when I saw the glow. A bright, purple, neon sign that said Endgame Movies. Ironic, I thought to myself while taking a hit of the joint. Must be a franchise because the setup was exactly the same as the one I was in as a kid. Down to even the scratches all over the window. There's only one dude, this is going to be cake, said Eric. Just watch the exit for me. We don't want anyone walking in on us, I told them. I walked with my hood up and my gun raised. Give me the cash, motherfucker, I yelled. The guy behind the counter looked up at me, and his eyes went wide. Looked like he shit a brick if I'm being honest. He went pale and his mouth slightly opened as if to say a few words. I leaped over the counter and shoved him. Cash! Now! I said again as I leveled my handgun to the center of his chest. Give it to me. What the fuck? Are you deaf? I yelled. Dude must be fucking stupid, man. Tyreek chuckled. He didn't utter a word. He looked like he saw a ghost. Then he started moving towards me. No way. He uttered as he stepped towards me. Dude, back the fuck up, I barked at him, just trying to put bass in my voice. Why won't he listen? All I want is the money, that's it. How? He said. It all happened so fast. But somehow the moment lasted forever. I still remember the smell of the gunpowder, the sound it made when I pulled the trigger. The sound of the round entering the man's chest, and the feeling of warm blood splattering on me. I didn't know what he was doing. He grabbed me. I jerked to nudge his hand off my shoulder when it happened. The pitter-patter of small feet is what took me from my trance. A small boy ran past us and out the door, and shortly after we ran too. I tossed the gun and ran home, and I mean home, home, to my mother. I begged her to let me in. I cried outside of her door about how sorry I was. I told her I changed, that I'd finish high school, I'll go to college, I'll make her proud. She finally opened the door. She embraced me and allowed me to feel safe. Only a way a mother could. I didn't tell her what happened. I didn't tell anyone. I just wanted to move on. I planned on keeping my promise and becoming a man my mother could be very proud of. I never was arrested. I was never even brought to trial and never heard anything about that man again. I kept my promises to my mother, mostly. I stopped spending time with my old friends, stopped partying. I finished high school and even went to college. I just couldn't keep up with it. I failed out of college and I couldn't find employment to save my life, or importantly, my apartment. 
being unable to pay rent, I had to move back in with my mother. I sent out applications everywhere, in person and online, from banks to McDonald's, and I only got one reply back. It said my application was reviewed and to come to 4567 West Nut Street at 7pm to start my first shift as a cashier. Instruction will be given there. I thought this was my shot to start building again. Save some cash, maybe go to trade school, or play with some stocks. Anything to start getting serious about my future. I was 26 for fuck's sake. I need to have some kind of idea of what to do. The address given was only a few blocks away, which was a short walk. I walked and saw the glow of a neon sign. Endgame movies. The M flickered slightly. What the fuck? I said out loud. How do these places pop up so quickly? I didn't care. I'm here for a check. Hello? I shouted as I walked in. No one answered. I'm here to start my shift. Still nothing. I walked to the counter and read a note. Man the register until relieved from duty. Signed, management. Okay, easy enough, I thought. I walked around the store for a bit to direct myself. This chain must be really cookie cutter because they are all the same. Even the movies. The back corner even had a Nickelodeon VHS section. Behind the counter I saw a Tiger Beat magazine. Something I haven't seen since I was a kid. I put it on the counter and started flipping through it, embracing the memories of the 90s. Then I heard the door open, and the pitter-patter of small feet. Excuse me, do you have the Rugrats movie? Rugrats? I haven't seen Rugrats in forever. Yeah, kid, check the back corner. I paused. The boy in front of me looked just like me. Child me, that is, and it wasn't a close resemblance. It was spot on, even down to what he was wearing. I remember that Digimon shirt and my favorite Power Rangers backpack. Thanks, the boy said as he walked to the back of the store. I couldn't take my eyes off him. Him. Off me. How was this possible? Give me the cash, motherfucker. Three teenage boys stormed into the shop. One with a gun raised to me. What the fuck is happening right now? I thought to myself. I am this teen. The one holding the gun to my face is me. The two boys behind him are my childhood friends, but... How is this possible? He leaped over the counter and yelled, Cash! Now! Leveling the gun to my chest. Give it to me, motherfucker! Shouted my younger self. No way! I uttered out. And not as an attack of defiance. An act of disbelief. Disbelief at knowing that I'm about to shoot myself. I still couldn't believe this was happening. 
I have to be dreaming. This has to be an extremely vivid dream. Or I'm reliving the moment when I shoot that man. I take a step towards him, reaching my hand out. If I touch him, I'll wake up, and I'll be home on my mom's couch. Maybe if I get close enough, I can see him better. See that it's not me. It can't be. Maybe... I didn't feel it at first. At first, I just couldn't catch my breath. Then came the white, hot pain. I collapsed to the ground, clenching the juicy hole on my chest. I felt the warm blood oozing out of me, and I felt myself choking. I was choking on my blood, and my lung filled with my own blood. I heard the front door open and people running out of it. I found myself dying, with only my thoughts. Thoughts I couldn't even make sense of. Thoughts trying to piece together what just happened. Thoughts of every fuck-up in my life. I heard another door open up, but it wasn't the front door. I heard footsteps walk towards me. My eyes flicker as I struggle to keep them open, and I can make out the image of a man. I study him, and on his shirt there is a name tag that just says, Management. The man kneels down, looks me in the face, and says, Your shift is over, Mr. Brown, with an ear-to-ear grin. Our last story tonight comes to us from writer Rebecca Levine, and it's called True Gentlemen Drink Their Scotch at Room Temperature. My ears rang slightly from the lively chatter as I slid a $10 bill and my now empty glass across the bar. Another, please, I muttered. No ice. Thanks, pal. Keep the change. I rubbed my hand lightly over the grizzled five o'clock shadow coloring my cheeks and chin and grimaced as the jukebox started blaring another song about jilted lovers and pickup trucks. Gulping down the last of the amber liquid, my joints creaked into movement and I staggered my way to the door stepping into the cool night air. You always hated the way scotch tasted on my tongue. Like regret in noir movies. You'd laugh as you pushed me away. I scowled, fighting the memory of your disappointed smile, and fumbled in my coat pocket until I found my keys. I knew I was in no condition to drive, but... It was only four miles to our, my, apartment. And at this point, what did I have left to lose? I'd gone less than three blocks when I remembered the half-empty bottle stashed under the passenger seat, gripping the steering wheel in my left hand. 
I leaned over and groped blindly until my fingertips grazed its neck and tried to tug it loose. In what must have been only a split second, but felt like a cliché movie scene slow motion haze. The bottle that would destroy my life came free with a hard yank. Something heavy and alarmingly soft slammed into the hood of my car before sliding under my tires with a muffled bump. My head pounded into the steering wheel and glass rained down on my wilting form like a meteor shower before the entirety of the cosmos were snuffed out. I woke up to someone gingerly shaking my shoulder. Mister? Hey, mister, you okay? Lifting my throbbing head, I wiped some blood away from my eye and examined the source of the voice. There was a girl, no more than sixteen, a tiny waif with cornflower blue eyes, peering hesitantly out from behind messy strawberry blonde bangs. She laughed uncomfortably. <laughs> you sure killed the fuck out of that deer, mister. Your truck's pretty messed up too. Are you alright? Your head's bleeding awfully bad. I climbed shakily out, legs wobbling under me, as I thought briefly to myself how the deer I'd apparently killed must have tottered about like this as a fawn, before my knees gave out and I collapsed back into unconsciousness. Two days later, I was at home with 19 stitches above my eyebrow and another 13 across my jaw, a crumpled mockery of what used to be a truck rotting away in my front yard, and one of the worst cravings for booze I'd ever known. As I glowered at the photos of a couple in happier times taunting me from the coffee table, I knew it wasn't merely a craving anymore. It was a need, gnawing at me with more bite than the pain of my injuries. I threw on my coat and shoes and prepared to walk out to the nearest gas station. Whoa! The girl cried out, disheveled bangs puffing off her face briefly as she stood up quickly, startled by the door opening. Hey, mister! You're okay! Gosh, I was real worried, you know. I mean, with you passing out like that and you wouldn't wake up. Gee, I sure am sorry about your truck. I guess the deer killed it too, huh? That's the only way I could find your house. I, I've been looking all over for you to make sure you were alright. I must have walked over ten miles going every direction trying to find you. She stopped talking suddenly, leaning closer to study my sullen expression. You sure you're okay? got a bunch of stitches. I'm fine, I grumbled. What are you doing here? Gosh, I, I just said I wanted to check on you. Maybe that crash affected your hearing too. Well, like I said, I'm fine. Seeing her face fall made me soften my tone slightly. How long were you waiting out here, anyway? Looking almost embarrassed, she murmured. 
A couple hours, I guess. I knocked, but you didn't answer, so I decided to wait. I, I don't know, mister. I just felt like I needed to see you again. Where are you heading? Can I come too? Please? Despite my loud sigh, I was relieved to have company other than my own thoughts, and we set off toward the store. After that, it became a routine. Every day, I sank further into the writhing tendrils of depression grasping me, retreating more into my self-imposed ostracism from the world. Every day, I left to drink away my unemployment money by seeking solace in another bottle, and would find Natalie, or Nat as she preferred to be called, waiting on my doorstep. Some days, my teasing that her name was actually Nat with a G because she was always incessantly buzzing around me was warm and lighthearted. Most days, it wasn't. She stuck around anyway, and despite my best efforts to the contrary, an odd friendship formed. Nat said her parents were both in jail, and she'd been living with an elderly, senile aunt who had no idea who she was half the time, much less whether or not she was attending school. I tried encouraging her to go initially, then resorted to screaming at her to leave me alone and go fucking do something useful with her time instead make something of herself, so she wouldn't be like me or her parents, but she refused. Instead, she brought over books, maps, and puzzles. She'd sit on my dull, splintering wood floor and gaze up at me from under those damned bangs, eyes glittering as she eagerly recited the newest thing she'd learned. It was the only time her words didn't make her sound like a country bumpkin, to be frank. Did you know that the biggest earthquake ever, the 1960 Valdivia, Chile earthquake, registered as a 9.5 and was felt all the way in both Japan and New Zealand? Did you know that over 1,800,000 people were used in Jonas Salk's initial polio vaccine trials before they even knew if it would work? Between bursts of Jeopardy-like facts, she often asked me questions, ranging from the broad but bizarre... What's the earliest memory you have where you were aware you were forming a memory? How many memories do you think you've forgotten? To the pointlessly philosophical, do you think trees feel pain? While I tried to drown out her chatter one drink at a time. This went on for weeks until one day her demeanor changed. She wasn't her normal bubbly self and barely spoke though she kept looking up at me from under those fucking bangs while reading. What? I finally snapped. What do you keep staring at me for? Why are you acting like a puppy who got smacked with a newspaper? I, I'm sorry, I wasn't trying to... She stammered quietly before sighing and starting again. David? She asked nervously. Do you believe in heaven? Or an afterlife? Nope. Not since the day my dad hit me in the face with a wrench. So hard it shattered three of my teeth. And my mom told me, Sometimes things happen that we don't understand. But that I must have needed to learn a lesson. I figure if there is some divine being out there, 
I rolled my eyes deeply as I took another drink. They're a prick. Nat's eyes met mine briefly, filled with what looked like regret and pity, then darted away. So, what do you think happens after we die? With a sharp breath in, I belted off key. <sighs> the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms play pinochle on your snout. Stop it! Just stop! She cried, clenching and unclenching her pale hands into fists. I couldn't help but think of the time I saw a butterfly with a torn wing trying to fly flapping earnestly and gracelessly with all its might before collapsing on the ground. I know you like to be mean to me, and that's okay. Well, it's not okay, but I know that's just how you are, and I try to be understanding of that. But this is important. I need you to know something. Trying and failing to smooth her hair into place, she looked up at me. What do you think happened to the deer you hit that night? What? I, I don't know. I assumed someone came and moved the body or something ate it while I was in the hospital. What does that have to do with anything? Where is all this coming from? Biting her lip softly, she shook her head slowly. What if I told you there wasn't a deer? I stood up rapidly, then stayed still for a moment. My head was throbbing. Too much booze, not enough water or food. I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but you sound like a goddamn lunatic. You should go. Get your shit. Natalie stubbornly continued to sit on the floor. There was... there was no deer. I have nowhere to go. Where do you think I came from, anyway? How do you think I'm able to hang out with you every day with no one ever coming to look for me? Seeing my expression rapidly spiraling between confusion and anger, she began to talk faster. Think about it, David. Do you think someone would have wondered where I am? Why I'm never in school? Or for that matter, why there's a teenage girl hanging out with a man twice her age, every day? My head was swimming and I felt nauseous, but a realization suddenly broke the fog. Why are you talking so differently, Natalie? A faint, sad smile crossed her face. Listen to me. Please, Dave. Please, I'm not crazy or stupid. Please. I sank back onto the couch. That night, you were so drunk and so bitter towards the universe. You weren't paying attention to anything but trying to get more alcohol down your throat as quickly as you could to black out into oblivion again. She inhaled and continued, voice trembling. There 
is no oblivion. We don't rot. We become something greater than you could ever imagine. You did hit something that night, but it wasn't a deer. I was out for a walk, trying to get away from my house and watching my aunt slowly morph into a shambling shadow of who she used to be. I saw your truck coming, speeding way too fast and swerving. I tried to get out of the way, but I, I couldn't. Tears welled up in her eyes. I couldn't. No. I groaned, burying my face in my palms. What are you talking about? You were fine. You were talking to me. You told me about the deer. A thought struck me, and I clung to it with the desperation of a drowning man. No. If I hit you, I'd be in jail. You're fucking losing your mind like your aunt, that's all. This is some sort of delusional episode. Like a dam breaking, tears cascaded down her cheeks. There was no one to arrest. By the time the police got there, you were gone. Stop. Please stop. Why are you doing this? I was there. You told me what happened, and then I passed out and I woke up in the hospital. And then you started coming by all the time. All the goddamn time. Why are you here all the time, Nat? I don't understand any of this. Scooting closer to me, she pulled my hand into hers. You killed us both that night. It's okay. I know you didn't mean to. I forgave you the moment it happened, but I've been trying so hard to help you, to make you look at the universe differently, to accept what I knew as soon as it happened, that there's something better, something more, somewhere where you don't have to drink every day, where every memory isn't filled with poison and pain. You just have to be open to it. I began weeping openly, heaving with sobs in the unabashed fashion reserved solely for toddlers and those beyond caring what others thought of them. No. No. I searched my memories in panic, trying to recall talking to anyone else recently while buying liquor or going to the store. Wait. When was the last time I even went to the store? Or ate? I, I'd gotten so used to barely eating after Lizzie left that it had been ages since I felt hungry. I tried frantically to think back to my time in the hospital. To any concrete interactions with anyone there. Nothing. Natalie, you're the only person in my life who ever believed in me, who didn't think I was a complete piece of shit. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have been so mean to you. I'm so sorry. You're the only friend I ever had. 
Don't leave me. I didn't mean to hurt you. I blubbered. Smiling up at me, she laughed softly. <laughs> I'm not leaving you, silly. But it's time for us both to go. She stood up, blew her bangs off her forehead one last time, and held out her hand to me again. Ready? Rising once more to shaky legs, I smiled nervously back. Ready. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this week's stories. You're listening to some underwater sounds right now. Remember, you can visit scarytosleep.com and go to my contact form to let me know what soothing sounds you would like to hear at the end of the show. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw that this month I had the most Patreon rewards I've ever had to mail out, and as my little stack of envelopes grew, so did my heart. I was blown away. I literally cannot believe I get to write to people who listen to and support my show. It's still so surreal. This week, I send a warm thank you to Christopher Nitkin, Nina G. Jones, who famously wrote our goriest episodes, Good Hair and The Smile, Ellie Wells, Bob Souchere, Nikki Grogan, Dory Wataha, Alec, Corey Austin, Deborah Dunlap, Jenny, and Zach DeJong. Just, wow. Pretend I'm giving you all a big hug right now. If you have a story, send it my way to scarytosleep at gmail.com. I'm accepting fiction and nonfiction stories. I have almost enough for another True Tales episode. If you've been sitting on one, please send it over, or if you know someone who has a spooky encounter, let them know. I'd love to tell their story. Also, I can always leave your name off of a story. In the past, I have had a few submitters who asked me to keep them anonymous, and I am happy to do so. I know sometimes you don't want Carol in accounting knowing about you seeing a UFO because she'll never shut up about it. I was recently asked for my P.O. box, and I realized I haven't mentioned it on the show in a while. If you'd like to, you can write to me snail mail style. Shelby Scott, P.O. Box 8224, Mission Hills, California, 91346. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scary to Sleep. You can join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Scary to Sleep, where we put up a discussion thread every week to discuss the episodes. And I think that's all for now. Now, go get some sleep, sweet dreams. <laughs>